So many times I can go back to the realtor and very much at least get a copy of that old check because it gets scanned when it comes in, right? The only reason why I knew about this is because I used to work as a secretary at a real estate company. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Hey, welcome back. It's Sarah Larby. You are listening to Where Should I Invest? I'm actually recording this outside right now. It's such a beautiful day in August and you might be able to hear the birds and the frogs or the water or the boats, but it's uh, it's important to be outside as much as we can because summer is so short, especially the nice warm days. So this week's podcast, I have Andrew Chubetta, who is my paralegal, my go-to, and he is absolutely a wealth of knowledge. He's also a real estate investor, has some really cool investments in Ethiopia, but we talk about landlord stuff, what we need to know, and it's always very educational to understand the side of what can go wrong and what you can do, cannot do it as a landlord in many places such as Ontario. So I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. And by the way, the retreat at Inspire Beach Resort was absolutely amazing. We're going to do another one next year as well. I think everybody that was there is going to be returning. Spots will be limited. I think we're going to keep it to 40 again, but it is going to be another great event. And the feedback was just absolutely amazing. Speakers were great. The food was great. It was a lot of planning, <laughs> a lot of planning. Let's put it that way. Hours and hours, probably hundreds of hours of planning, but it was a success. And so that I'm happy with. But before we go and bring in Andrew, let's bring in Dahlia for today's financing tip of the week. Dahlia, over to you. I'm Dahlia, founder of Streetwise Mortgages, and in today's episode, I would like to share with you some of the common misconceptions about financing. We're going to talk about value today, and let's start with value in residential financing. To determine the loan amount you qualify for in the residential world when you're buying one to four units, the lenders look at your ability to carry the mortgage personally based on your personal income and income from your rental portfolio. They will also take into consideration the appraised value of the property, along with what you purchased it for, if it's a purchase. Say you're purchasing a property for 500000 and the appraised value comes in at 700000 That's a fantastic deal. Traditional lenders will lend on the lower of the two numbers. Remember that. In this case, what you purchased the property for, which is the 500000 a private lender, however, may be willing to lend on the 700000 If the appraised value comes in lower than what you purchased the property for, say at 400000 when you bought it for 500, then all lenders will lend on the 400000 and any difference between the loan and what you purchased the property for, you will have to inject out of your own pocket. Let's now shift gears towards the value in the commercial space. And when I talk about commercial space, I'm referring to commercial properties, multifamily properties, uh, mixed use properties, um, and properties with five or more units. Many think that on a commercial property, the lenders lend at 75% of the value or 85% of the value with CMC. Well, this is partially true, but let me explain. To determine the loan amount you qualify for on a commercial property, the lenders will look at the property's net operating income, not your personal income. 
and they'll take into consideration the appraised value of the property along with what you purchased it for, if we're talking about a purchase. The property's net operating income is the property's income and expense statement adjusted for some reserves that the lenders take into consideration, such as vacancy allowances, repairs and maintenance, admin, and so on. We have developed a sheet called the debt coverage sheet that auto-calculates the reserves that the lenders will take into consideration. So you don't have to figure this out yourself. To download a copy, you can go to streetwisemortgages.com forward slash toolkit. Based on the NOI or the net operating income, the lenders determine how much debt the property can carry. This is called the debt coverage. I've actually put together a one-hour complimentary webinar to explain the concept of the debt coverage, how the lenders calculate it, and how that impacts the loan amount. You can request a copy of that webinar by emailing us at info at streetwisemortgages.com. Now, the loan amount determined by the debt coverage will play a huge role into the final approval. So let's take a look at an example. Say you're, you are purchasing a 12 units apartment building that is valued at $3 million based on the appraisal. And you're buying it for 3.1 million. The debt coverage for the property with a conventional lender, these are the lenders who are willing to go up to 75% of the value, is 1.5. And with CMHC, which can typically go up to 85% of the value, is 1.1. Now, remember, the appraised value is 3 million. If you run the math, a conventional lender should be able to lend at 75%, which is 2.25 million, and CMHC should be able to lend at 85% of the value, which is 2.5 million. But because both of these loan amounts are higher than the loans determined by the debt coverage, the lenders will go by the lower of the two. Remember, guys, lenders are conservative, so they will go by the lower of the two. So on commercial properties, you have to remember that it's not the value alone that determines the loan amount. The lenders will always look at the debt coverage and the value and will go by the lower of the two loan amounts. In the next episode, I will cover other financing misconceptions. Until then, if you are looking for guidance with your residential or commercial portfolio, have a challenging situation, or would like a second opinion, reach out to my team at info at streetwisemortgages.com, and we would be happy to assist. Cheers to your success. Dahlia, that was awesome. Thank you so much. And guys, reach out to Streetwise Mortgages if you have any financing questions. Now let's go on to the podcast. Andrew, welcome back to the show. How are you? Doing fantastic as always. How are you doing? Good, good. I always look forward to these conversations because I would rather know what I need to do or not do from a landlord standpoint than to be in the courts and have to call you because all of a sudden I've got myself <laughs> 
So Aisha and I are both going to be interviewing you today and uh, we're going to find out what is new and I shouldn't say exciting, but what is new and maybe unexciting with the whole landlord tenant board stuff. And then we're going to get into a little bit of the short-term, midterm, my favorite strategy right now for the control that you have, which you don't have so much on being a landlord in Ontario. So first and foremost, I know you've been on the podcast before. Give us a quick intro. I know you are also an investor, but from a, a paralegal standpoint, give us some information on what it is that you do. Yeah, so I'm a paralegal inside Ontario. I primarily handle landlords and board matters. Small claims, everything sort of tied to real estate at this point. Predominantly what I do is not either non-payment of rent or renovations, evictions, that type of thing. Notice of increase, notice of eviction, and I handle matters of the landlord and tenant board hearings, and then from their enforcement of orders, garnishments, rent recovery, and uh, civil claims as well. So I sort of take the process the beginning to end and uh, move along with most investors, property management companies, REITs, that type of thing as well. So a full, full service, uh, service type of package at this point with myself and my team. Amazing. Now, is this Ontario wide? Yes, all of Ontario, everywhere. Okay. Now the landlord tenant board and a lot of small claims court as well. It's all through Zoom or Microsoft Teams, depending on your jurisdiction. So yeah, it's all over Ontario. Okay, awesome. All right, so here's the first question. And, and as we talk about these, I would say, look, at the end of the day, I love real estate investing, but this these conversations are going to be tough, right? Because ultimately, this is the downside of potentially being a landlord when they have to reach out to you. There's usually a problem, right? It's not to be like, hey, listen, I just made this like this much money off a of refi. It's more like I've got this problem with my tenants. And so tell us like what what is happening in the courts these days? I, I know at some point we were not doing any evictions during the pandemic and then that went away and then there was a backlog. Like what is that looking like today? Well, we're seeing a lot of metrics from the LTB. We're seeing that there's actually an increase, right? So the launch of their new portal system in December has been interesting. So there's some good, there's a positive, then there are some negatives, of course, with implementation of every new system. And also as well, we're also seeing a lot of amendment changes to the LTB and wait times are steadily increasing. So we were actually seeing things turn out to be a little bit longer than they typically were. So depending on which jurisdiction that you're in, I'm finding the worst one, of course, being the behemoth that is Toronto with some applications that I have. I have a non-payment of rent from April of last year that hasn't been heard yet. And then I have some other applications from 2020 that haven't been heard yet in 2019. So the, we're hoping that the new system will eventually get to a point where everything's a lot more streamlined faster. But at this point, it's kind of, it's, it's a little bit odd with the wait times. It's, it's touch and go. Someone from Hamilton can get something in six months or four months. Someone in Toronto could be waiting half a year. And there's just a disconnect right now when you're going to get your hearing date, depending. Mm -hmm. yeah. And is there anything as a landlord you could give like advice, like what we could do as we're planning, as we're applying, as we're coming to you to avoid i know we can't avoid the long wait i know it's there i know it's there because of the system and how it works in there but what can we do in advance to make sure that all our ducks in our row to make sure to make your job easier so that the wait doesn't get more extended because of a lack of action on the end of the landlord yes so it, it sounds it sounds very direct i will just try to make it as direct as possible rip off the band-aid because it is difficult to talk about i'm not in the habit of anymore of advising any landlords to try to do a an 11 with like a non-payment of rent situation or have a conversation with a tenant as soon as there's a non-payment of rent for on may 2nd you send it in for that's it 
Okay, so let's, let's take a step back because I think that what you said was really interesting because I think a lot of people try to do what cash for keys and then do the N11 so that you don't have to go through the whole process. Let, let's talk real quickly. What is the N11 and why don't you recommend that anymore? Yeah, so an N11 is an agreement to vacate. Okay, so a lot of people sort of know it from cash for keys, that type of thing. The N11 is an agreement. It's not a contract. So the tenant can renege on. You can file an L3, but... The tenant still has the option of always reneging on that type of you know, documentation. So what you want to do is file your, your L1 or your L2, which is your documentation for non-payment of rent or moving, et cetera. And then from there, you can do something called a release, right? Attach a contract to it and get an enforceable order. So a lot, a lot of landlords will do is they'll say, you're just not paying your rent on time, et cetera. And they'll hand you that N11 and they'll sign it. But it's basically a paperweight. It doesn't actually do much for you. Right. And the, the cost of doing such a thing is so long and it can be pushed for such a significant period with the LTV. So I always tell everyone if it's late payment and for file it, if it's consistent late payment, but you're still getting your money, you do something called an N8 for consistent late payment, at least three, you need at least three late payments to do it. After that file, it's $186. Just file it. It'll wait a year, but then by the time you get to the board, you can make a request for them to pay the rent of the first of every month on something called a section 78, which is a common term is something called a penny in a day. So if they're late one penny, they're late one day, you can go for an eviction order. Hell of a lot easier. That's interesting. Okay, so three N4s essentially, because I'm guessing you have to prove that you've issued the N4s that they were late. And then you go to the N8s and then you file that. And then what, what's the timeline, even with something like that for the N8s to actually get the tenant out from start to finish? So N8s are always slower than non-payment of rent for an N4. So I would say you're stuck in the queue with everyone waiting for an N12 for again. So seven months, eight months, something like that. Okay. That's typically what we're looking at. So if the tenant is not paying, they technically, and I, I find like it's such theft, like this would never happen in any other type of business. It's horrible. But let's just say a tenant decides that they don't want to pay and they also decide that they don't want to vacate. Then a landlord should be ready to have eight to 10 months of mortgage payments that they have to cover out of their own pockets, taxes, insurance. How do they, if they do, ever get their money back? So let's just say it's been eight months. The sheriff essentially removes the tenant's. The tenant leaves, you get your keys back. Like what is the process afterwards to try and reclaim that cash? So you want to do some, well, first you should always have ID, that type of thing when you're doing your leasing situation. That's a bit of a pro tip. People don't do this, do it. Don't lease anything without ID. So once that occurs, you get an order for the landlord and tenant board, you can take it towards garnishment. There's several options you can use with garnishment. Civil forfeiture, rid of personal property and sale, which is sell someone's house, sell someone's car, that kind of thing. We use the office of the sheriff for small claims court. And the best one, which is what everybody knows, it's garnishment through a bank account or through an employer, right? And I always ask everyone to get an employment letter. I always ask everyone to get at least a void check. And then what you can do is just do the enforceable order, reach in and grab the money right out of the account. And the very least, it goes into overdraft, right? Uh, and I can get an idea of where this person banks and where they work, right? But it's the issue when you don't have anything, then it's a problem. At the very least, get a photo of the, of the VIN of the car or get a photo of the license plate. Give me something that's tied to them from a municipal, municipal address or something like that. And I can at least locate them somewhere. And then from there, you can actually get your recovery your funds. It comes to a court order and you'll be happy when there's just a check sitting at you for you, waiting for you from the small claims court. So the advice I'm hearing you give is 
make sure you vet vet your tenants before you let them move in. Take the proper precautions. Perhaps even hire an external company if you don't have the the time and ability to do it yourself, because that's really going to make or break how easy or hard your situation is going to be if things take a turn for the worse. Yeah, and I, I don't understand why the like why there's such like lack of education on this. A lot of leasing agents, like even real estate agents, they won't. You got to take that extra step of a mile because the repercussions are so bad. So you can do something called an FOI, which is a Freedom of Information Act request, and you can just send it into the landlord and tenant board. And they, they won't tell you what happened, but what they will tell you is if there was a matter, right? If someone was attached to something, and you can know immediately if something's going on, if they've taken to the landlord, to the, to the board, if they've gone through a non-payment of rent, et cetera. But since the new court ruling, everything from the landlord and tenant board is now reportable online through Canly. So you can also search their name there. Anything from like 2021 onwards, now will just be on uh, on the internet. So and you're, you're seeing that now from a lot from tenants, they're starting to notice this. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Are you looking to sell but don't want to move? Did you know that with Sell Rent Stays program, you can get paid and remain in your home? Life sometimes throws curveballs at us where we need to access the cash tied up in our homes. With Sell Rent Stay, you can get access to your home's equity without the hassle of moving from the house you call your home. Sell Rent Stay works with each client on a case-by-case basis to determine the value to be paid for your home. To learn more, visit www.sellrentstay.com. And now back to the show. Okay, so hang on. I just want to take a step back because I think this is all brand new news for many of us, right? So, so they can, so as a landlord, I mean, obviously if you're inheriting tenants, it's a different story, but as a landlord, if you're screening tenants, you can go on Canly, type in their names, you see if they have some kind of order or you go to the LTB and you ask for an FOI. What is an FOI and, and where, like, who do you email or who do you even reach out to at the LTB? Yeah, so you can actually, I'll actually give you the direct email. So it's, uh, so I'm, I'm inside the Hamilton district. So if I was doing it in Hamilton, I would send it to so-ltb at ontario.ca. And then there's the regional offices on the on their Tenant Board website. You can just email the request to. The FOI, I think it costs like five bucks. It's pretty much nothing. And then you just punch in the name of the individual and request any orders or any applications within that within the landlord and tenant board for the past two or three years that this person has been a party to. Mm-hmm. And they'll send you a response within 30 days. And it doesn't have much on it because you can't actually get uh, access to the information, but they'll tell you something exists. Interesting. Tell, I mean, even yeah. if it's like a, an N4 and then the L1 was filed, like that would show up? Yes, it would show up. And then you just ask. Yeah. Landlord tenant board said that you went somewhere. Please tell me what this is and provide me with the documentation. If you don't, that's it that's that's a gold mine right there like no matter what we say for the rest of the podcast like that is huge (laughs) i'm sure there'll be lots more value i know but but that that i think is is super important to add that to your your screening but just to go back so id vin number of the car car or license plate so when they're you could probably just take a picture with your phone employment letter obviously they can change jobs but you know and then even avoid check so i think those are all really good documents that you need because if you don't have this because what i so what i hear a lot of is after the tenants get out the landlords kind of just say well that was a ten thousand dollar learning opportunity on to the next one or, or whatnot and and they don't pursue like how difficult is it to pursue if the tenant 
left their job, maybe doesn't have a job, like what is the actual, what does that even look like? I mean, obviously it's easy if they have a car, if they have a, maybe they bought a house or whatnot to go after certain things, but how do you get blood out of a stone? It's not actually hard. Landlords just suck. Unfortunately, that, that's the reality of it. Like, I, I, I've been trying to educate people as much as I can, but they just, they don't want to take the correct step. And I love it. A lot of real estate agents now are sort of picking up to it and they're going that extra mile for that service and they're doing these things. But everybody else is still back in the dark ages where they just get the, the lease agreement, they get a sign and they go, great, thanks, bye. And they have no clue what's happening, right? So ID, get all that information that I just provided you. But in addition to that, when you're looking for your payment back, you can do the garnishments through the employment, but there's something called a, excuse me, I'm like, a, I'm a tongue tied, but there's a type of request you can do through the court. It's called like an assessment hearing. And if the tenant doesn't show up, you can also do a, something called a summons to court. So if they don't show up and at least explain where they bank or how they bank or through something called a debtor's examination, a police officer won't pick them up. That's it. I, so it takes time, mm -hmm. right? That's about it. It does. It's not hard. So somebody could potentially then hire you for the entire process and then also hire you to get the cash and, and follow through. And, and so like, if it does take time, like, so I'm thinking like, if, what if they're on, I don't know, some disability or something along those lines, like, does it garnish that? Like if they really have nothing and, and they just have their disability checks or, welfare or whatnot? So if they're only getting disability checks, then you cannot garnish that disability check. Can't do that. But that's never how it is. It is never how it is. What happens is there's that, but there's always some sort of income, income from a colleague, friend, a dependent, that type of thing. And it's going into the same account. So you can't garnish that amount, but you can garnish everything else right? You can do civil forfeiture and everything else. And that being said, quite frankly, if you've taken $27,000, you're going to sit there and explain to me why you can't pay it. That's it, right? You're going to sit there and you're going to at least make an effort to show up because we don't live in a world where someone can just run off for $28,000 Landlord, I have a lot of landlord clients that are not huge investors. They're a lot, just one or two properties. And these are people's pensions. If I walked in and I, and I was working as counsel for DeFasco or Stelco, and I just took money right out of that account or that pension account, I would go to jail. That's it. It's not the issue that you're poor or you can't afford rent. That's the problem. It's the issue when you don't answer to it. You can answer to it and just say you don't have it. Right? I mean, I think it's, it's also in a way we're doing ourselves a disservice by foregoing that last part, right? Once they're out, they probably trashed the place. I mean, I think Landlord Credit Bureau is also a great place to just even put some of that information in to, to show up on their Equifax reports for the good ones and also for the bad ones. But I think we're doing ourselves a disservice because I think it's in the landlord tenant groups, it's kind of known that landlords aren't going to go through that final step. They're kind of just going to have the tenant leave and then they're going to eat the cost. And so the tenants can repeat and repeat. But at some point we have to break that cycle. Mm-hmm. And you do that by getting ID, provincial ID, you know, some passport, something, right? And then I can track them. I can locate them. I can garnish them. I can summon them. It's fine. If you can't pay, make the payment, that's fine. Make, don't make the payment. But I'm going to go through every single account, every RRSP, 
pension amount. I want to see where all your money is coming from, everything. And the reason why I get to do that is because my client has been sitting there with no money. That's the reason why, right? So these things are, are important that we go through because there has to, we don't live in a world of punitive measures, right? This isn't like debt court, doesn't happen anymore. You don't put people in jail for, for not paying something. What we do do is we bring them to court and we have accountability. And a lot of people just run and landlords just eat it because they don't have the information and they don't have the knowledge of what they're supposed to be doing. And unfortunately, that's what kind of what happens. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it comes down to knowledge, information, also the proper support that we should be getting from the government, really. And I know a lot of a lot of landlords who, especially new investors, who were just sort of introducing to the investment world who are saying, like, I really just don't want to be a landlord. I really don't want to have to deal with that. But then we're dealing with the, the housing crisis shortage. And we're dealing with people not being able to afford housing. And then they need to rent because housing is unaffordable. But then who are they going to rent from? They want to rent from landlords. But then if landlords are scared because our rights, our rights are not there, and in order to get our hard-earned money back from these tenants who are running off and having to come to you, and then you're having to jump through these hoops to chase them. It's just unfortunate that you even have to go through all of these, you know, essential uh, efforts when really it should be these papers we give them and serve them from the LTB should be more than just wait. Like they should be held more accountable with these, with these forms, right? So that way it's not then, okay, I hand you these forms and then having to go through you to sort of go through that. So I think it, I think it's putting landlords in a tough spot overall. So it's good that you have those issues. You call someone like Andrew, you have that paralegal on your side. And really it's about educating yourself and knowing from the beginning what your rights are and how to take those steps so that you don't avoid them just because you don't have that knowledge to sort of do so. And really in the end, you'll avoid all these problems later on and losing tens of thousands of dollars because you'll take that very first step of the proper tenant screening in the first place and hire that paralegal maybe when you buy that property and say, hey, I'd like to have you on retainer, help me work through all these processes, be there on my side so I don't end up, you know, at the bottom of it coming to you then after all this mess has happened for then Andrew to clean it up. So what are the steps you would advise if I'm a brand new landlord saying, okay, Aisha, you're a brand new landlord, everything's good so far, you've done your first tenant screening, or you've told us a few things of the tenant screening process, what other things to keep in mind that things are going to pay attention to what further steps can I take? Should I be more hands-on with my tenant? Or maybe should I, if I'm not ready to be hands-on, should I ensure I hire a property manager? And if so, what's your advice on that to make sure what are they gonna do for me so that I don't end up in these type of messes? So what's like maybe two or three things you would say are super important as a new landlord to really pay attention to whether I'm self-monitoring or self-managing or hiring a property manager to make sure that things don't sort of get out of hand before it's a mess that now I bring to you and say, Andrew, help me. Okay. So unless you're a police officer, I don't think you should be screening your tenants. That's it. Right. I do have a lot of clients that are police officers and they do, they do their own screening. Fantastic. I love it. Right. But I, I don't think you should be screening your own tenants. A representative, like a real estate agent, way better than you are. And I can say that with nearly 100% accuracy because those real estate agents have to do fin tracks. They've got to do document generation. They've got to do a lot of things on their ends. They get ID, they get all this stuff as it is, right? Plus when they drop off the deposits, it comes from a check that's still held with the real estate company, right? So many times I can go back to the realtor and very much at least get a copy of that old check because it's scanned, 
when it comes in, right? The only reason why I knew about this is because I used to work as a secretary at a real estate company. So at least getting that is important, but I'm not going to be so cavalier because I know, I know everyone doesn't have the money to use a, a property manager. It's just not realistic, right? So you should have a tenant screening process in the very beginning, all your forms, all, all the documentation that you very much will need has to go through either a paralegal or that real estate agent. But once that goes forward and you actually have them in the property, after that, the number one biggest thing I tell everyone is know what the N4 forms are, because those ones you do need to do or learn how to do on your own, because you should not be paying a, a paralegal for the N4s. I, I personally don't believe that you should. It should be something that a landlord knows how to do on their own. And you need to at least and have a clear understanding that you cannot at all from now on play like the nice guy, right? It's, it's just not something you can do anymore. People are trying to come to agreements on payment, but they don't put it on paper. They, they have the conversation, et cetera. That's not what you do anymore. May 1st, no payment, May 2nd, and then 4. You wanna chat about afterwards about habitual late payment or payment plans or that kind of thing? You know, absolutely. Let's put a five-day period on it. Let's move the dates. Let's do that kind of thing. But it'll be through a court order. They'll be to the LTB's tribunal order, but it won't be just through like a cavalier conversation, not anymore. No, otherwise it's terrible. I mean, I think it's part of the being a professional and saying this is part of your process. Once you pay, it goes away. At least it's it's done. How do how do people issue the N4s? Like, what is the proper way to deliver an N4 notice on the second? Oh, you mean I'm paranoid because I've dealt with so many issues with the the board. So. Uh, there's several modes that you can do a fax email. Don't use email. That's not the right way. I hate when people tell me that. Don't do it. Even if they, you've been contacting or communicating, I don't care. Don't, I don't, just know. That's the answer. You need to mail it via regular mail. You need to email it as well. And then if you want to be extra safe, you can send it via registered mail. Right? I, in my office, use two forms. The email. And then I also regular mail it to the, the, the property as well. Certificate service is perfectly fine with putting like regular mail. You don't need to show it in the mailbox or that kind of thing, but you can also do direct delivery as well. If you want to drop it off too, if you're doing electrical delivery, then you take a photo of it because you are the one that's actually physically there dropping it in. Regular mail is perfectly fine. Just putting it in the mailbox. And then if you're using courier, you can use that. But the reason why we still just give that email notification as well is because when it goes to the board, I can tell the, the adjudicator, hey, look, in good faith, my client provided it through the mail. They didn't get it. I understand. But at the same time, there's an email here as well. So on a balance of probability, you knew. So let's not have a chat about that. Well, let's have a chat about the non-payment. So it gives me something to utilize. All right. So you've got your backup in case there is, and probably you hear all the examples and all the examples in the books, right? And so, and so what about the L1? Is there a different method of giving that? Oh, okay. So the L1, you don't actually have to serve on the tenant. You just file it to the landlord. That's it. And, and how many days after? Because I think there's a, there's a specific amount of time, right? Yes. Yeah, so you can only utilize it 30 days after the initial notice. So you have a time frame. Like you, it like expires after 30 days of the termination date. So it's the day you give it. From there, it's 14 days. If you're hand delivering it, that's your termination date. But if you are sending it through mail, it's five additional days for mailing. So you have to add that on top. So what I, ever, what I always tell people is whatever the date is, you add an additional seven to 10 days, right? Just do it anyways. And then from there, you file it directly after that last day. And then it goes forward from there. 
Okay. And then, and then you wait essentially, right? So what happens after the L1 gets filed? I think there's, there's a small fee, right? That the landlord pays. And then what's the process for somebody that hasn't gone through it yet? You wait. That's it. Unfortunately, you've got to wait, wait, wait some more and wait and hope and pray, right? That's traditionally what you do. But that doesn't mean like my office gets hired not because I do paperwork, right? My office gets hired because we remove tents. 90% of the time, I don't go to a hearing because I don't want to go to a hearing. If I go to a hearing, I've already lost. Ten, the client's already lost ton, tens of thousands of dollars worth of money or their project has been bled through because they've been waiting for an L2 hearing for a non-payment of rent. So what you do is you try to do a release. Then you go for cash for keys. And cash for keys, I, I hate using that term, but I use it because everyone knows it. It's a release. That's what it is. I filed against you. Now we're settling that. We're not, I'm never providing a tenant with value on them leaving. Right. That's why I hear inflated numbers all the time is because you show up to a house saying, Hey, N11, if you leave, can I give you some money? No one's going to think that's a good idea. Right. You file first. You don't even notify them about any offer or anything like that. You just file, serve everything two or three days later. Then you go for an N11 along with a contract. That's the way you do it. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey, are you looking for a reliable contractor for your next Burr multifamily conversion or flip project? Somebody who understands how to work with investors and also real estate investing itself. I've personally partnered with Lee Polak from Wise Construction. We're actively doing many projects together in Hamilton and Wellen. So things like smaller three and four unit conversions and also some larger buildings where we're converting some large empty commercial spaces into residential units. And it's always been important to meet a partner and hire a contractor who does not only high quality work, but is on time and on budget. And it's also a huge bonus that they have their own in-house trades employees and a warehouse full of building materials so that they can avoid the many labor and material shortages that we hear about often these days. A good project done on time, on budget, and with high quality work will be key to the success of your Burr multifamily conversion or flip projects. So to connect with Lee from Wise Construction, text or phone him at 416-525-5951. Again, that is 416-525-5951. And now back to the show. And now back to the show. So you file the L1 and then you do the N11. You, sorry. And then you, do you do any cash for keys? I think you mentioned the cash for keys, but after the L1, is that, is that what you were saying? After you filed and served. Yeah. So, so why, why do it that way? Because I'm, I'm not, my clients don't provide compensation for someone to vacate. No, that's not what people, people think I do that. I don't do that. That's not what I do. What I do is I hold accountability and you're buying time for my clients. There's already a guarantee that you're going to be vacating, typically speaking, because if the notice is done correctly, there's a legitimate reason, go faith. People always get into a dispute about it for about lying about my application, et cetera, et cetera. I won't go too much into it, but if you're just doing it, apparently speaking, you're likely going to have a time to vacate if everything done correctly. Okay. So if that's the case, buy time for me. That's it. That's the only thing you're going to do. That's it. Right. I'm not going to have the conversation about 20 or $30,000. No, that we're not doing that. And if you owe money, then at least I want an abatement of that back. Apart from that, we can wait because that's what you're trying to, but most people try to use that against the landlord. We'll wait and we'll wait. I'm like, okay, we'll wait. You'll get a hundred bucks. And then you get the tenant applications as well. That's a big thing. If you get a tenant application, what you want to do 
And this is a little trick that I always tell people. <laughs> if you get a tenant application, that's gold. It's so good. Let them sue you. It's fantastic. Get that. And you can do something called a request for shortened time and urgent hearing. And what you can say is, hey, I'm a landlord and I can't be a landlord anymore because I suck because all of this is not working out correctly. There's no water, there's no heat, that's emergency. So can you please give me an urgent hearing? Urgent hearing gets requested, you can join it with your other application. So when they get there, they have their tenant application, fantastic. They get a rent abatement, then they get evicted two seconds later. So it washes the secondary one. So a lot of the time so tends to do that. Yeah. So you're trying to avoid thing. rewarding them for their poor behavior, because yeah. if that continues, or if that's even on the table, they're gonna hold out until they get it. So you're like, that's not even gonna be an option. So just know that if you're not gonna behave accordingly based on our lease agreement, then here we go. Now, does this also apply, let's say like my short-term tenant comes in, I wanna stay a week at your cottage, a week goes by. I don't really wanna leave your cottage. So, uh, yeah. No, that's a grace. So, so are those kind of, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. So short-term rentals technically shouldn't exist, but they do. And they sort of sit in this odd sense of purgatory with the landlord and tenant board. But there is a way of doing it. Like you can do it, but it's just very difficult. You can have a lease agreement perfectly fine, but it must be attached to your Airbnb listing. It must be a reference between, between your Airbnb listing. It is not an Ontario standard lease. If you use that, I will yell very loudly at you. Do not use that. Use something called a lease addendum. If you want one, send an email to my office. I'll shoot you one over there. Perfectly fine. We have free copies. But it's sent on that listing. And in addition to that, you're advising the, the there's an understanding that the terms of that contract are only attached to short-term rental. But there's, there's a bit of case law. And I'll provide it as well. Like you can place it on your website. But there's a bit of case law that if I think you are a landlord or investor, if you don't have it, you're a fool and you're not a landlord and you're not an investor. That's it. It's an important piece of case law. Basically, what it means is anything that's on Airbnb or VRBO is not under the control of the landlord and tenant board. The jurisdiction is not there because it's a commercial lease. It's under the Commercial Leasing Act. And what constables will do, and I have a bone to pick with a lot of these, these uh, police services because they'll show up to the property, they'll look at a dwelling and they'll go, hey, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's the LTB sheriff. Meanwhile, the sheriff goes, I don't touch that. I'm not gonna, you can't go to the board for that. So you gotta go to the board simply to get an order which takes like nine months, then it comes back, says that we're not, we can't do this. You hand it to the police constable and then he goes, oh, okay, no. And that's Give him that case of lost rent. That's 10 months of headaches. That's 10 months. And, and I will say, cause like I was very wary of doing, and it was a myth back then. And until we had a conversation, like I was thinking a different way, right? But this case law just came out in December of 2020, which essentially from my understanding and what you're saying is it has to be booked. It's better to be booked on Airbnb and VRBO or otherwise it's some kind of occupancy agreement, but it's just easier to do through sites that, can, that you can just easily show proof. With the case law, you call the cops if somebody doesn't leave and essentially they're, they're what, trespassing? Mm -hmm. It's called trespass to a dwell. That's it and they need to be removed. Some landlords will do something called an A2 application. I've been harping on that recently for some. If you have an, an Airbnb, 
or that kind of thing, you can make a request from the board and I believe it's an A2. I, I, I'm, it's not top of my head, but it's a type of request that you question the board about your property and ask them. An adjudicator will write you an order that says, yep, this is not part of the Residential Tenancies Act. It costs a hundred bucks, like $186. Like if it's legal fees that you're looking at, legal fees for something like that is like $500. And you have an Airbnb and you're not going to do that. That that's dumb. Wait a second, I think this is important. So you have an Airbnb listing. You could mm -hmm. essentially go to the board and just make get a paper that says this is not part of the RTA. So if this mm -hmm. ever is a future issue, it's a non-issue because you've got the paper already ahead of time. Is that what you're saying? Mm -hmm. That's genius. Amazing. So that's a hundred dollars. You go to the board. Are you, are you able to facilitate that paperwork? Mm -hmm. I can do it. Yeah. Okay. So anybody that's got a short short-term rental listing, you call Andrew. Andrew Tubetta. And you say, Andrew, I want to make sure that these listings, they're short-term rentals, they're mid-term rentals. They are not part of the RTA. You do the paperwork, you get the paperwork back. It's under bucks plus whatever your costs are. And they've got that as fallback. Yeah. Now, what if now they say, I'd rather not take it off. I'd rather not do it on Airbnb. I want to do my own occupancy agreement. I got my lawyer to draft it up or my paralegal to draft it up. That says cost per night, cleaning charge, this and that. Does that hold up? Would that hold up or is it just better to just go through a, a, an actual site with a platform and a booking? Okay. Number one rule, always do the site. Always. That's it. It's never do anything else. No number two rule, just the number one. No. That's it. It's like it's accomplished. Done. That is it. It can only be done through there. That's all. Okay. And I really need to make that clear because that's so important. Don't do it. Don't do it. Please just do it for the site. Otherwise it does become a problem. I have been able to save some clients, right? But the number one thing with landlords, when this happens to them, they say, yes, they, they don't, they listen to the constable and they understand the constable and they're, and they're, they agree with their apprehension. And having someone with authority in front of you tell you that is heartbreaking. It's gut wrenching. But the reason why the constable is doing that is because they got to cover their own ass because it's important that they do. Because if they're removing someone from a property, imagine what it is. You're pulling someone from their home for any reasons. You got to have a clear understanding of what is going on. And if they're not doing it, it's because they don't believe you. That's the, that's the truth, right? They want to see a court order. I am sometimes able to get this done, but it takes me two or three days just to get all the documents prepared and ready on my end. So when I show up, I make the call to the police, they show up and before they even say anything, I go, okay, here's the dwelling. This is the person that's in there. This is how it started. This is the amount of money that they pay. It's from VRBO or Airbnb. I understand that you're going to say that this is regards to the landlord tenant board. Here's a recent case law. It's not the case. Not at all. Hasn't been for a while. From there, um, this person does need to vacate. I want them at least charged for a trespass to a dwelling because I've given them notification two times already that they must leave the lawful dwelling and they still haven't done so. I understand that you may be apprehensive from doing this. That's why I brought a bailiff and you bring a bailiff because the bailiff has the control of removing locks on a commercial tenancy. You'd hand him the notice, he does a writ and you can just tell him you're here to keep the peace. So you may not want to pull this guy out of the property, but you're going to stand here while I rip off the door. That's it. And then I'm going to shut off the power, electrical, heat, hydro, all of it, all at once. I, and mean, then, I love that. I mean, it, like at the end of the day, it's, it gives us the control back. Granted, there's always two sides of every story, but I think for some of this stuff, like we always get the short end of the stick. And this is why to me, 
this makes a ton of sense to like, if you have the right property in the right neighborhood, obviously it's not going to be for, for everything, but the midterm rental is genius. You do it through Airbnb, you do it through VRBO and then they leave. Let's just say they trash the place. Then you go to Airbnb and I don't, I can't speak smartly about VRBO, but I've had to go through a couple of times with Airbnb, but let's just say they damage the place or there's some damage. Well, you've taken a damage deposit most likely and Airbnb has up to million dollar liability insurance and they can pay back the damage. It takes about three weeks. I had to go through it once or twice. So something like that, like we don't get with the RTA, we don't get that through the LTB unless you're waiting eight to 10 months. So but the number one rule is they have to go through Airbnb. They have to go through VRBO, no occupancy agreements, use the case law paper, which in the fall, we're going to go through a little bit of course on all that stuff. We'll have you come back and present on that. Use the case law. Can you just clarify, like, what is a bailiff? Like, what, what is that? Like, where do you even get one of those things, those papers? Yeah. So you can get a bailiff. You just Google bailiff. They come up right away. Predominantly, they're utilized for commercial tenancy evictions for removals, right? So let's say you rent a farm, they put a writ where they can do guard, they can do that kind of stuff. They can provide notice of eviction for a commercial place where you can do a lock change, right? So VRBO means it's a commercial tenancy. You have that, you have a court order and you're handing it to a peace officer. So the peace officer can't ignore a court order, right? It's clearly marked. So he'll look at it and he understands that now this is a commercial tenancy. If it's a commercial tenancy, I don't care what it looks like. I can pull the door off and I can take off the heat, the hydro and everything. So a bailiff is not able to put their hands on a person, but they can take possession of a property. And if I take possession of the property, then I can have them charged for a dwelling. But at the very least I can have them remove and force that peace officer to do something, right? At the very least, the, uh, the police are there to also protect the bailiff as well. Because the bailiff's gonna cut the lock along with the locksmith. Sometimes, depending on how I'm feeling, either I'll board the doors or I'll leave it actually open because some, most people will leave because they don't have any security. You board the door, they'll break in through somewhere else and they'll live in there longer. So sometimes I just leave the doors completely wide open and no heat, no hydro, it just sits there. And it typically takes about four days and then usually they bolt off. Let's hope it's not minus 20 because you don't want your pipes to freeze and all of a sudden the water problems. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Typically, I, I'm I'm usually around the property in case that happens. So it's but it's happened every once in a while. Amazing. We're gonna get into a lightning round in just a moment. But like, are you are you extremely busy? Like, how do you, like if somebody wants to hire you, they want to work with you. Like, is is it? Do you have a team? You no. Know, like, give us some some insights on that. Yeah. So I, yeah, I am busy. But at this point, it's it's funny. Like, I take client consults. I think one, but I have like, I have to take my day roughly about five minute increments at this point because it's just, it's such, it's such an onslaught and, the, and the, the board at this point is very, very difficult to deal with. So if I'm not in court, typically what I'm doing is consulting with the tenant or speaking with the tenant because that's the most important thing. It's more important than the client sometimes because getting them out, like the, the client may be upset that they can't reach me, but they'll be happy when they're not broke. And they'll be happy with the tenant out of the property. That's the most important thing. But I do have a team. I have myself, the partners are myself, Glenn Gosling, Mr. Mrs. Angeli Smith. And then I have a team of other individuals all under me, other paralegals and other clerks, et cetera, et cetera. So it's an army of people that, that do this with me. Uh, it's not just myself. I can't, it wouldn't be possible, especially with the amount of paperwork and documentation. But yeah, it's, it, is, it is a team effort on everything. Landlord tenant board law is not something one practitioner, in my opinion, can do anymore. It's just not right? Because there's just so much 
uh, that needs to be taken accounting for. You, you miss a, a postal code, all of a sudden the client has been waiting 12 months and you have to tell them that it's been messed up or there's an issue or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And mind you, that that's a lie, by the way. That's a big lie. And I'm going to stop that right now because people keep saying it. Just because the paperwork's wrong doesn't mean the stuff, your application's just garbage, gets thrown out, right? A lot, some practitioners don't even know this. You can replace those notices. You just, re, you just refile them. You just put the new one in, remove the old one out, and then amend your application, your L1 or your L2. And then people go, you can't do that. So, yes, you, yes, you can. You can do that since 2019. People don't know this, and they just serve the first one, and they realize afterwards, and like, oh, my God, it's going to you know, it's done. It's like, no, that hasn't been the case. There's case law against it. Use the case law. You attach it to your submission. Then you're good to go. Just fix it. It's fine. You, right? you know what? Out of all the paralegals I've ever worked with, and they're, they're all, they've all been great. I, I can't say anything bad, but you're the, you're the only one that actually gives me hope <laughs> as a landlord that there's actually some additional, I don't want to say loopholes, but options for us that we don't have to just be the short end of the stick all the time if we accidentally have a tenant that we that slips through or, or taking tenants properties over with tenants that we're not fully stuck. I mean, yes, it takes time, but it feels like you've got some options, right? I, I re- recently had a friend uh, of mine reach out to you and she had reached out to a couple paralegals and she's like, I really, Andrew's more expensive, but I really want to work with Andrew because he gave me options and solutions while everyone's like, oh, you have to wait, you have to do this, you have to do that. You're probably going to get screwed out of like the next 10 months, but you're, you come up with solutions. I think that's genius. So thank you. Oh, thank you. That's very thoughtful. Yeah, myself, my team, there we're always we're always there for the client, of course. Like I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say anything negative against my other colleagues, but the reason why I, the reason why I act like this is because I believe it. Mm-hmm. It's not trial practice for me. I believe it. I really do. I, I genuinely believe in the things that I do. Right. So the reason why I look for different options and how to make it work is because I believe that there's an issue here. I believe that there's a problem. Right. And I don't have that belief. I'll tell you right now for insurance, like a SABs and accident benefits. And like, it's just not, that's not me. I've worked in real estate for a long time and I can see that there's a distinct issue with this type of, this type of, well, court system, everything, the access to justice as is. I'm actually working on an online tool for landlords right now. So they can just automatically e-file directly themselves. And because the big thing with paralegals and lawyers and it's just, you, you get worried about the applications themselves. So you, you don't know how to actually fill out the forms. So I'm trying to work on an online tool to actually do it for you. And you can just automatically follow like the easy N4s and that kind of thing. But yeah, you got to find a solution. You got to figure out another way of, of assisting and finding that and the end date and that termination period, because the repercussion, repercussions are very bad. And inherently speaking, the, the, the process itself protects the tenant because the Residential Tenancies Act is there to protect the tenant. That's what it's there for. Tenant Protection Act is also there to protect the tenant. The landlords, predominantly speaking, used to have the most power before, but it's used, utilized in this manner. The real problem is not the law, right? There are protections in the law, but if you're a practitioner or if you're someone that understands the RTA along with the notices, that's not actually the thing. It's actually weighted in the landlord's favor. And people get shocked that I have that idea. It's like, well, if you don't, you don't know that, it's because you don't know what you're doing. That's the real thing. The issue is the wait time. That's the problem. That's the real issue. Mm-hmm. Everything else is ineffective. 
Amazing. Well, I, I think we should just call you. If we're not too sure, call Andrew and his team and they'll take care of it. Andrew, we're going to do our lightning round and you're going to answer five questions in like 20 seconds or less per question. Are you ready to play? Hell yeah, let's go. All right, here's question number one. What is your favorite real estate investing book? Oh, Mark Loeffler's book. What is that? Renovate and Sell? That one? Yeah, it's my favorite. Awesome. Okay, great. Question number two. What is your favorite podcast? Oh, this one, but come on. Other than other than Sarah Larby's. Other than Sarah Larby. Oh, okay. I predominantly enjoy the NPR NPR podcast. Okay, awesome. Number three, what do you do for fun? I play video games. All right, very cool. And uh, number four, if you lost everything today, how would you start over? Mm, I'd be a carpenter working with real estate investors, probably. That's probably what I would do. <laughs> yeah, very unique. Number five, if somebody has fifty thousand dollars. They want to start investing in real estate. How would you recommend they spend that money? Mm, hire a coach. Look for a coach to assist you. That's the first thing. Second thing, look at properties not inside the GTA. Look further east. Windsor is really good. New Brunswick, St. John, that type of thing. That's the way I would look at it. Look for a JV partnership. Real estate investor with a real estate license is probably the best way you're going to do it. So be a JV. That's what I would say. Very cool. And, and I must add, for those of you that may... Uh, maybe not maybe they haven't heard you on my last podcast but but andrew guys invest in ethiopia and many other places like some really cool places and you're you've got like apartment buildings that you have in ethiopia so go back to that podcast listen to his prior one it was a great episode as well andrew thank you for playing the lightning round thank you for being on where is the best spot for the listeners to reach out and find out more you can find me at Caveat Legal LLP. So you can reach me at 289-339-1311. And you can also email us at, well, email us myself, Andrew at CaveatLLP.com. And yeah, you can reach me there. You can reach me on the website as well. Amazing. And you've got those virtual N4s and forms. You've got the case law. You've got the ability to help people get their Airbnb and or short-term, midterm rental considered commercial through the LTB. Guys, reach out to Andrew, reach out to his team. They are a wealth of knowledge. Hire them on retainer. At least ask your questions. Don't get yourself into trouble. Stay out of trouble. And, uh, and, and definitely you do want to have a great paralegal on your side. Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show again. Thank you. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons and at the time they all seemed very valid, but as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away and eventually only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked. And also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step -step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. 
And you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.